sadantuo sucedo ye hulahudi san miao san putoshi. The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, Dharma friends, welcome to our Sikha lecture. This is the 16th of April. We're here in Berkeley, California, and we're about to look into the Ten Grounds chapter of the Flower Garland Sutra, the Flower Dharman Sutra. Please look at your cover of your text and we'll recite the name of the sutra and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas by way of invocation to uh, bring that presence to our minds. Namo Page We're on the second paragraph. 
There are plenty of sutra texts up front if you want to grab one. Okay, we'll start with the Chinese first and then go to the English. Yo 除灭一切，烦恼大火，安置清凉，涅槃之处。Over to the right, second paragraph. He further makes the following reflection. All living beings constantly pursue the three poisons. And the various afflictions flare up because of them. They do not understand how to seek with determination the essential methods for escape. I should teach them to extinguish the great blaze of afflictions and settle in the pure tranquility of nirvana. We're listening to the voice of a bodhisattva. This is an awakened being. And he comes to us in the sutra um, with the Buddha's voice behind him. Although it's not the Buddha actually speaking, the Buddha has tapped someone else to tell this story. And we're hearing about the thoughts inside the mind of a bodhisattva. And the sutra gives us a uh, X-ray vision gives us a, a view into the head of a bodhisattva, into the bodhisattva's heart, as he looks at us. Unfortunately, the bodhisattva is looking right at us, but not just humans, and not just humans in the affluent world of Northern California. He's looking at beings who don't have human bodies beings who have not yet arrived. He's looking right past the surface. The, the, we're looking into the heart of the bodhisattva as he looks past our surface, past the bodies that we wear, past the habits that we change as we grow from infanthood to childhood to adulthood to elderhood and on all those habits, as we go through all the different faces we wear and hairstyles and bank accounts and identities, the Buddha looks right past those into our nature. And this is what he's talking about. He's talking about who we are before we think and, and talk. 
And it's not pretty. I wish, I don't wish, I wish we could hear more of the truth, even though it's bitter medicine. Um, that's why these texts are timeless, because this is the, the Buddha's insights, the vision that he's giving us, is not bound by culture, it's not bound by age or even ge- geographic age. This is true for living beings from the start to finish, beyond humanity. That's really important to understand that the Buddha is not just talking from what we call a anthrocentric, homocentric, a human-centered pers- perspective. He's not. This applies to everyone who is involved in mortality. Mortality means everybody who's got a body who dies. And as soon as you say that, that implies that there are people who have bodies that don't die, who are immortal or even beyond birth and death. And the Buddha is one of those. So he's stepped out of this circle of birth and rebirth, birth and rebirth, to talk about precisely that process. And from his point of view, and that's the the constant the constant uh, theme of this section of text, all of these paragraphs that we're reading, is the Buddha is saying, I got out and so can you. Here's how you do it. That's the theme. I escaped, but I didn't leave. I'm back to tell you how to escape. And there's also the, uh, the subtext, which is, and I hope you do. Please do. And in that hope you do, please do, there's a sense that that's all the Buddha can do is hope we get out, show us how, and just say, jiao, jiao, try your best, work hard, because getting out or not getting out in the end is entirely up to us. So it's really poignant. These texts are fraught with hope and disappointment with a wish and with the the reality that most people won't come within a mile of this text, much less open it up, much less listen to it in a language they understand or much less put what they understand into practice long enough to effect a change. But the hope is always there. And so that's why we bother to look into a text that's minimum 2,500 years old, has come to us from oral tradition, Indic languages, Chinese, into English, and is still very rough as we translate it. It's, this is by no means the, the final word on what it says, much less what it means. But good enough, right? So we want to, don't, don't think that Language is enough of an obstacle to make it irrelevant or not worthwhile. In fact, to have these texts in front of us, you could say miracle is not the word, because a miracle indicates some um, external cause, some, some other agency brought the miracle. In fact, this is hard work. It's human effort and great kindness on the part of a long line of men and women who... Um, heard what the Buddha said and thought that's a good thing so that's what brought these here it's not miraculous, it's hard work 
and vision that goes above the waves, goes from the mountaintops to the next mountaintop. So here we have these texts, and we're in 2011, and we're being scolded by the Buddha. How interesting, right? You've come tonight, however far you've driven, to get scolded by the Buddha. This is definitely a mirror. He's giving us a mirror and saying, take a look. Here's how, I don't, I don't see a finger. You, living beings, are. The Buddha is saying, here's how we are. I am entirely made up of living beings, although I'm not limited by the birth and death cycle that characterizes living beings. I've got one foot, both feet, outside of that cycle, and I'm telling you what I see standing there. Okay? So that's, that's our context. That's where we are. Second paragraph. He says, Yo zuo shi nian. He further thinks, she further thinks, has the reflection, yi chie zhong sheng, all living beings entirely, chang sui san du, always follow along with three poisons. Those are greed, more, 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 anger, I'm angry. I feel this energy rising up in me that wants to lash out because what I see does not make me happy. You can hear the, the, the anger tone, the anger energy, the force, the force du frappe, the French say. It's this power that wants to hit. And then the third poison is delusion or sometimes called rudely stupidity, sometimes called wrong views, seeing things the way they're not. Delusion is the result of the anger that is the result of the greed. Any one of them will poison us. And some people certainly have more of one than the other. But you don't get to delusion without greed and anger. And you don't get to anger without greed. And you don't get to greed without being a living being. So the Buddha says, all living beings always follow three poisonous things. Follow here means, you could say, swallow. Because we think of poison as something that goes in through the mouth, but not necessarily. There's environmental poisons. There's invisible psychological poisons, indeed. So, we follow greed, anger, and delusion. Zhong, zhong, fan nao, in zhi And lots and lots of fan nao blaze up because of that. What are fan nao? Fan nao is a term that I never heard before I came to Buddhism, but once somebody translated it, I thought, oh, that's an old friend. Fan nao, affliction, is the way it's translated in our um, semi-formal translation language. But what it means in the world where we live day to day is the blues, misery, aches and pains, troubles. Some people call it the mean reds instead of the blues. That's affliction. But affliction means other things. There's actually um, a whole list of afflictions in a formal list that the Buddha gave us. There are five fundamental ones that he said are the heavy ones, the roots of all the other afflictions. And what are they? Three poisons. Greed, anger, delusion, 
pride or arrogance and doubt. Those are the five basic ones. And there's mm, the other list of the afflictions include such things as lack of faith, the inability to hear something proper and say, that's right, being confused about what's right and what's wrong. That's an affliction. So there are, there's a list of afflictions, and I say they're old friends because by those names, I know them. I know the blues, and I know dissatisfaction, and I know doubt and confusion. Those are all <clears throat> gathered under the title of affliction, panna, miseries. The Buddha says many kinds of miseries because of the three poisons flame up. Chiran means to flare up, to burn, to burn. Furthermore, in the midst of that, says the Buddha, in the midst of that situation where life is not peachy, life is not copacetic, life is pain. We don't try to find a way out. We hang in there and take that situation as normal, daily fare. Master Shrenhua used to say, your afflictions are your best friend. You won't let them go. Happiness is right in front of you, but you won't pay a penny for it. Afflictions are there. Nobody wants to drop them. Joy, peace of mind, free of affliction is as easy as turning the hand over, but we don't think to do it. We won't even do that to get rid of our afflictions. So, strange. This, this is a scolding, right? You, how do you like being scolded by the Buddha? Okay, in our paragraph, he, there's always the flip over. The bodhisattva is here looking. He's looking at us and he's saying, here's how human beings, animal beings, insect beings, bird beings, fish beings, ghost beings, heaven beings, animals and hell beings, all these beings are like this. And then there's a flip. And the flip is we go into his heart. He says, you'll notice in each of the, there's this phrase, I should make, cause, encourage, push, allow, induce to, even trick into if I can. I should let them I should let them get rid of, extinguish, finish off, completely eradicate the fire, the big burning of affliction. The big fire of affliction. The huge mass of nasty. I should let them, cause them, make them get rid of all afflictions. Furthermore, put them safely into the Qingliang clear, cool place of nirvana. 
where suffering's over, says the Buddha. So that's our, the pattern in all these paragraphs is the Bodhisattva with the Buddha's voice is looking at us and going, lots of pain. And it moves me because I want to bring you out of that into another place. I want to put you in a place where pain is over. That's what he wants to do. Okay? So, that's this little capsule of um, these paragraphs. And last week we counted. We've got lots of reflections. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And then we're out of text for a while till we build our books back. We're translating as we go. You know, there's ten of them. There's ten paragraphs where the Bodhisattva at this point is going, whoa, look, 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 look. Here's what living beings are doing, and furthermore, it's, it's really important to see that he's not pointing a finger and saying, and therefore, I'm out of here. I don't want to hang out with losers like you. The Bodhisattva is not saying that. The Bodhisattva says... It's really touching. I'm moved. I want to do something about it. So there's this, here we're seeing the actual translation in his heart from horror, you might say, at how living beings are, to compassion. Where he goes, I really want to help. Did you all see the um, National Geographic cover with the monk? on the cover with his head covered by electrodes. Y'all see that one? It was about, what, two, three years ago? The monk was a Tibetan Lama, and he was rigged up for uh, neurological experimentation. They were looking at his brain. And he had these electrodes covering every part of his skull. Why? Because they were looking at every part of his brain. These electrodes were measuring the movement, electrical impulses in every part of his brain. It was weird, and it was a good cover. It was a, you know, the Geographic does these great covers because he looked like he had a mushroom, a fungus growing on his head. He looked like he had, you know, some sort of uh, truffles growing all over his head or some sort of moss, and it was these perfect coating of electrodes. Just every inch there was another one. And, And he was looking very... Tibetan Lama, you know, very tranquil, you know, covered with this, this thick moss of, of electrical uh, wires. And what was it talking about? It was talking about meditation and the brain. What happens to your brain when you meditate? What does? You know, you ever think about that? Well, There are people who are thinking about it and doing what we in the West like to do is measure it. If we don't get double-blind surveys, it doesn't exist. If it's not been measured with a peer-reviewed process and then published in a major medical journal, it's not true. It's not real. And so be it. Yeah, because... The reason why it made the cover of National Geographic is because they're getting results. They're getting very interesting results when they use Western methods to measure the brain of people who meditate. So, how fascinating, right? What happens? Um, 
there were, back when I was a grad student, way back um, in the mid-70s, Professor Lancaster um, used to, he had a great story that he used to love to drop into uh, our class on translation. And as he, he was, uh, we're talking about translating Buddhist texts, and he, uh, Michael? Michael, could I have some hot water? Like I should. Um, he, we were doing profound psychological, you know, profound linguistic analysis of the Diamond Sutra, and then uh, Professor Lancaster, who who did have the impulse to practice and was a cultivator and all, um, he said, "There, there are people who are using Western methods to look at Eastern practices." And this, mind you, was the early seventies when. Buddhism was brand new, brand new. And his famous story was, he said, they, uh, the earliest measurements was done with EKGs. EKGs at the time were the first things that allowed you to look at a graph and see a spike in activity. Kind of rude and crude, not very subtle, not like our the llama with his head all covered with every part of his brain. This was just to see if there was any activity at all. And, you know, basically, is the patient still alive? Spike, spike, like that. And they hooked up a non-meditator, an ordinary person, maybe someone who prayed, but definitely not not someone who used Eastern technologies, wisdom technologies to meditate. They hooked up a yogi, who was using Indian yogic methods. And then they hooked up a Chan meditator, but they didn't have any because China was still behind the Iron Curtain, a Zen meditator. They found somebody who was doing Japanese Zen. And they hooked up the three of them to the same machine. And then they went next to the ear of the person and they went... Let me tell you, this was a profound experiment. They hit blocks of wood together beside the ear of the three meditators. And then Professor Lancaster would say, he'd look around and he'd say, now, what do you think the spike on the chart of the non-meditator looked like? We'd all go, I don't know. What do you suppose it looked like? He said it looked like this. Spike... Spike, 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 flat. Which is to say, very quickly, the non-meditator adjusted so he didn't hear. Didn't hear the irritating talk, talk, talk. So, like most of us, we acclimatize. If you live next to a train, train track, you don't hear that train after about two weeks. Right? It's just jump. If you live next to a fish market, you don't smell it after a while. Someone who comes for the first time is like, oh. right? But you, we acclimatize. Our senses, the mind adjusts, and we chemically tune out those things that irritate it. Okay, 
So the first meditator, non-meditator, had a spike that gradually diminished. Flat. The yogi, they've got the Hindu yogi wired up. And this is someone who could go into trance. Right? Go into trance. And Professor Lancaster said, what do you suppose his line looked like? And we all go, I don't know. Nobody dared give the wrong answer to your teacher, right? I don't know. What do you suppose? So he said, it looked like this. No sound. Shut it off, right? Just completely blocked it out. No, you could drive a nail into his skin and he wouldn't react. This is non-Buddhist meditation. And, interestingly enough, we have records that Shariputra was really good at this kind of meditation, and the Buddha often scolded him. He said, Shariputra, you have to give up that kind of kung fu. That's not the real thing. Okay, so we have one more meditator left. And Professor Lancaster would say, and they went, talk, talk. how do you suppose the third meditator reacted? I don't know. How did the Chan Zen meditator react, Professor? He said, the spike looked like this. Talk, 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 talk. The meditator, using Buddhist meditation, was so tuned in, was so present, was so awake and alive that every single sound registered fully and he did not attach to it. He heard it, let it go. Heard it, let it go. Heard it, let it go. So he said, that's real Zen, he said. (laughs) Yeah. So real Zen is not attaching to any stimulus, but being absolutely totally present to every sensation. They go right through. You don't interfere but you also don't block out. And you don't adjust so that it doesn't exist. You don't gradually acclimatize and become less mindful. So, very cool. All right. Why am I telling you this story? For the sake of the next story. The next story came from that National Geographic where the meditator is all wired in. We had that picture on the cover of the Geographic of the Lama who is there all with his head looking like a mushroom, full of electrodes to every part of the brain. They wanted to see what was firing. So the story goes, um, and I think, I believe the, one of the spokespersons was Mathieu Ricard. People know Mathieu Ricard. He's a, a first of all, he's a, a trained scientist, his father is also a famous writer, philosopher of science uh, from Europe. Mathieu Ricard left home with his holiness, Dalai Lama, and is often pops up in these stories because why? Someone who has big credentials in Western science, fully versed in methodologies and, and cutting-edge theories of the brain, of uh, health and disease, and someone who also got profound training in Tibetan Buddhist methods of meditation. So he described such things as being trained to 
contemplate an image. Matthew Ricard was trained in a method that, where you would sit for hours and hours and hours in front of a tanka, a traditional Tibetan Buddhist painting, and you would visualize as you sat there in a very methodological method, step by step by step by step, you would visualize the Buddha's hand in the image. No more than that. And the, the way the, the hand was shaped, the length of the fingers, the balance of it, the, the wheel and the palm of the hand, which is one of the marks of the Buddha, etc., the color of the skin, the way the nails are set, etc., everything, everything in utter, total, precise detail as you sit there meditating in front of the image. You wouldn't stand back and look at the image until... Later, you would pick one piece, or you'd take the Buddha's knee, and you'd meditate on the Buddha's knee. And the tankas, the images of the Buddha, were considered to have so much uh, wisdom behind them that simply looking at the image at great length, I'm talking hundreds of hours, was considered to give you proper brain orientation towards wisdom and compassion. That's how the teaching goes. The Chinese Mahayana, the Vietnamese tradition, not so much. The Japanese tradition, a little bit. But in the Tibetan tradition, they really went into the visual orientation of a Buddha image, the way it rebuilds your brain. Or you could say your heart. The idea is that by doing this, you get a different shape. Invisibly, internally, you get a different shape. So that was one of the things that Matthew Ricard reported, that he had been trained to do that. And so they, here's the experiment, like Dr. Lancaster's talk, talk, talk on the wooden blocks. Uh, in this experiment that was, I believe this was conducted by uh, the Professor uh, Robinson, Richardson, at, in Wisconsin, um, where they've uh, got money and history of doing this kind of research, brain research. So what they did was they took ordinary subjects, students, staff, faculty from the university, and showed them horrific pictures. Imagine what's the worst things that could come in front of your eyes. And we could talk about that a lot because television media and broadcast media and online media have, in our lifetime, really taken off the controls of the kind of pictures they show us. As a footnote, I've been um, interested. This is the 150th anniversary of the war between the states, the American Civil War. And when I was visiting my mother in Toledo two weeks ago already, last week, last week, um, she was watching Ken Burns' Civil War. Uh, it's a nine-part series that he made, one of his earliest 
um, masterpieces where he reports in the Civil War. And one of the reasons why it's so interesting is because photography came into its own during the Civil War. The American Civil War was fought from 1861 to 1865, right smack in the middle of the 19th century. And at that time, photography became, it came out of the special laboratories like daguerre, daguerreotypes, the earliest tintypes. It became something that you yourself could do if you got a camera and were willing to work hard. Many, many people did, went out right into the battlefields and after the battlefields, carrying these huge cameras and got the pictures of what war was like. For the very first time, this is what I'm telling you the story for, for the very first time in human history, images of the effect of war on people, animals, and property came in front of people's eyes who were not involved. Matthew Brady is the photographer who is most connected. His name comes up the most when you talk about photography during the Civil War and after. Matthew Brady went to the battlefield called Antietam, Antietam Creek, um, which was, I believe, in Virginia, and took many pictures of the dead, the dead of Antietam. He made an exhibit and showed it in Boston and showed it in New York. And it was called The Dead of Antietam. It's A-N-T-E-I-T-A-M. It's the name of the battle. It's one of the earliest decisive battles of the Civil War. And the South won, by the way. Um, He took pictures of the dead and took them back to the citizens who were far, far away from the fighting, but who saw for the first time in human history, probably, images of the results of warfare. And the response was, you can imagine, they were still black and white pictures of dead bodies. And People had never seen such a thing unless they walked onto a great battlefield. And how many of those are there? So it was a big shock and a big awakening for many thousands of Americans who saw these. Okay, that was the start. Now, pretty much, um, we're seeing people get killed live on film, right? Not live like live broadcast, but the images, the pictures from Baghdad of the, the, the jet destroying the lives of people, some of whom happen to be reporters by mistake, and civilians. So we're, we're seeing these all the time. And it's hard to appreciate how much we become desensitized to this taking it as, oh yeah, normal. So, back to our story. 
Professor Davidson at Wisconsin wired up the llamas and wired up ordinary folks, non-cultivators, non-practitioners. He then showed them horrific pictures, pictures of the dead at Antietam and worse. And then he registered their brainwaves. What lit up in the brain when people saw these horrifying, burning babies? Right? The most shocking images you can imagine. And, of course, he cleared it beforehand to make sure that people were prepared and all. But nobody was prepared. What happened was, when ordinary folks saw these scary evil, horrific, terrifying images is parts of the brain that lit up included anger, fear, and aversion. People wanted to get away from them. The brain just, the fight and flight parts of the brain lit up. Very deep brain stem kind of survival. We gotta get away from that. Parts of the brain lit up. That's what what he discovered. Then, next step, just like our first story, like Professor Lancaster's story, he wired up the meditator and showed the very same images to the lamas who were that was the available monks who could speak in English about what they were experiencing. And what happened was No anger, no fear, no aversion. Instead, empathy, kindness, and sorrow. Those parts of the brain that the neurological scientists had identified as the place where empathy lives, the place where compassion lives. And so far into compassion that they said, the, the ordinary people who saw this had, could not feel with. Instead, they reacted against and wanted the first response. This is before thinking about it. The first response was, get me out of here. I want to take those images away. The meditator moved towards the images in his mind. And they say that the compassion of the meditators was way off the charts, was over here. There was total identity with the pain and a feeling of wanting to heal it. That was the first, the first response, the first thought, was not moving, not fearing, not being angry about, not being shocked, but instead feeling tong ti da bei, same body, Great compassion. So that was worth a story, right? That's worth reporting about. So what do we have in our text? I should teach them to put out the great fire of affliction and settle down in the pure tranquility of nirvana says the Bodhisattva. So, how about that? By golly, we'll take it if it's measured, right? If it comes out of a laboratory, 
We go, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been measured, it's real, it exists. So be it. That's the way we get, why, that's how knowledge gets passed on. Now, there are a lot of folks, this is just a subtext, there are a lot of people who have strong opinions about that kind of um, experimentation, saying, why does science rule in that it's so young? Science has only been, science with its tools and this method of knowledge. Nothing wrong with science. Science is what we do now. But to assume that this is the only way that knowledge becomes legitimate is ignorant. The Buddha's teachings about the mind, the depth psychology that he is prescribing, has been around in human heritage for two and a half millennia. The methods of science, which is entirely based on consciousness, has been around for a couple hundred years, the most. So, it's not the case that science measures wisdom. Science is a tool that can give us access to the mind in a certain respect, and there's value there, definitely. But to say that, oh, finally, Buddhist wisdom exists because science can measure it is to be ignorant of anything beyond our own immediate culture. So, okay, but here it is. And compassion moves in the Bodhisattva's heart as he looks at us and says, you're burning with greed, with anger, delusion. I ought to help you put that fire out and get to a place beyond suffering, he says. Okay, comments, questions? Next paragraph's a whole lot like the last one. It's just scolding from another point of view. Okay, here we go. 又有做十年一切众生为一切众安望见后魔之所复故入隐亦愁临失智慧光明行旷业贤道其助恶见我当令彼得无障碍清净智言知一切法如实相 he further makes the following reflection. All living beings are covered with the heavy darkness of stupidity and the thick coating of false views, so they enter the dense shade of the forest and lose the light of wisdom. They travel on dangerous roads in the wilderness and create wrong thinking. I should teach them to realize the unobstructed, pure wisdom I so they know the ultimate reality of all dharmas and never follow others' teachings. Okay, more of the same. Looking into the the mind of the bodhisattva as he looks at us, and the text says, beings are what? Covered with 
a weighty, a thick, you could say a dense darkness of stupidity. Yuchir. There it is right up front. Yuchir. You guys are dumb. You're stupid. You keep doing this, he says, says the Bodhisattva. Not very charitable, is he? He's kind of right in your face. You're stupid, he says. And furthermore, if that were enough, that would be plenty. But there's more. He says, we got two analogies. He says, Wang Jian, wrong views, false views, seeing things the way that they're not and believing in that. Ho Mo, which is like a film. It's like saran wrap. It's like plastic wrap over the top of the bowl, but it's covering our six senses and our mind. We're covered by the plastic wrap of wrong views. Furthermore, we walk right into the dense forest, he says, the thick forest of in e. He says, they go, you walk into a dense, dark forest. That's what it is. You're going into a dense, dark forest. Furthermore, as you do that, guess what happens? The light of wisdom goes out. You lose the light of wisdom. You enter into a dense, dark forest and lose the light of wisdom. Okay, there's our two images. One is this coating of stupidity covers us over, the coating of wrong views. Furthermore, he says, we walk into a dark forest and the light goes out. Another image. He says what? We walk on dangerous wilderness paths. And there, qi means to bring up, to have. And mentally, what that means is we, we think. We have these jian. Harmful views, harmful viewpoints that arise because we're out in the wilderness on a narrow footpath, having come out, having wandered through the dark forest and being coated by a film of stupidity. How about that? Boy, the Buddha is describing the state of people who, like us, like me, Don't make use of wisdom. Don't make use of a compass. Don't make use of common sense. Instead of staying safe, instead of staying in the light, we go into the dark. We walk towards danger instead of away from it. Okay, so that's the description. That's what he says we do. Then he says, I should, there's the turn, right? I should teach them to realize the unobstructed, pure wisdom I. So they know the ultimate reality of all dharmas and never follow others' teachings. Now this, um, the first image is what? I, sh- I should make it so that they get, it's their, the, the, the modifiers are unobstructed, pure Wisdom, I, but it means vision, right? I should make sure that those living beings get clear seeing. I want them to see clearly. 
with wisdom that has no obstacles. So it sees right to the heart. That's what I want to do. So that when they see something dangerous, they pull back. When they see something broad, wide, well-lit, flat, straight, they walk that road. And furthermore, when they have that wisdom awake, they will recognize, what is it? That's my name in there, by the way. That they will know the ultimate reality of all dharmas the way it really is. Because they have this wisdom eye wide open. That's what the Bodhisattva says he's going to do. And then he tosses in this last piece, which is Bu Sui Ta Jiao, which doesn't. Now, you could interpret this really wrongly, which would make the Buddha sound like um, he's fighting for, for followers. Literally, not follow others' instructions. That's not, it's not that the Buddha is saying, I'm the right one, they're all wrong. That's not it. He's saying that when living beings get this unobstructed eye of wisdom, unobstructed vision of wisdom that is pure, they're going to see the reality of all dharmas. They're going to see how things ultimately are. And not they'll see it for themselves, not have to rely upon others' impressions, interpretations, including my own. In this Bhusui Ta Jiao, what the Buddha is saying is, I want beings to see it for themselves. Don't take it from me, he's saying. By the way, uh, if anybody would like to close windows, probably it wouldn't be so chilly. If you're feeling chilly, notice the windows are open. Okay. Um, yes, why see? So you're saying that the it's ru shi, right? Actually, it's not. That's not the way I see it. What I see is I, I don't see the comparison here. What I see he's saying is he the ta. I think means anything that you can learn from outside instead of yao sui zi jiao. That's what I think it means. Ta refers to including, I think the Buddha is taking himself out of this as well. It's not that I want you to listen to me, they're wrong. It's don't take it from anybody. Once you have the wu zhang ai, the unobstructed, pure, wisdom vision you yourself will recognize the ultimate reality of all things and not have to wait for someone to explain it to them any longer I think that's what it means so it's interesting because the boot you know it'd be the reason I brought that up is this you could read that and say I want you to follow my teachings literally don't follow others teachings but the key I, I really think the Buddha is not putting himself up as the standard of who you should follow. He's saying, don't 
once you get this unobstructed wisdom vision, you don't have to depend upon words and language and thought. You don't have to hear it from anybody else because at that point, you yourself see exactly how it is without relying upon words, what somebody can tell you, including me, or anything else. There's no theories at that point left because you're already home. You've made it home. You're there at that point. Okay, so interesting, huh? We have all these, like, this sounds like, you know what it sounds like almost is um, in his description of living beings. It sounds kind of like a uh, Sunday morning Vermont white clapboard church with a preacher. You're heading towards the shoals. There's a fiery pit waiting for you. Come back, lost children. You know, it burns, it burns hot. You know, and you're in there saying, yeah, tell me about it. I'm really bad. I want to hear about it. You know, I'm bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but the good book will save your soul, says the Sunday preacher. And you believe him because he's got religion. And he's, the, the hell that he describes is hot and waiting for you. There's a lot like that, right? Those living beings, they're covered with a heavy darkness of stupidity. Right? Yeah. Tell me. But from the Buddhist point of view, it's the truth. You know, that's exactly right. He's saying, you know, my goodness. I, um, in thinking about this, I got an email today that I thought was interesting from a Taiwanese friend who is in the healing professions here in California, but is very concerned about Taiwan. She says... There's more news from Taiwan reporting these days that there is a severe shortage of medical doctors in Taiwan. Very few emergency room doctors and surgeons left in Taiwan. This, I had not heard this. This is all news to me. And I got um, nowadays, doctors are more interested in becoming plastic surgeons because of the great difference in financial reward. This, you could say the very same thing about Korea. Also true of Korea. I don't know about Japan. I suspect it may be the same. I know about Korea. Plastic surgery is the preferred specialty right now. Um, most of the MDs have been overworked and underpaid in Taiwan after the national health care reform. Young people are no longer interested in applying for medical school anymore. To be an MD, a medical doctor, used to be one of the most highly respected and admired professions in Taiwan, but things have changed after the social and moral values that have been greatly compromised by the pursuit of money and vanity in Taiwan. Now, this person is writing about Taiwan, but you know that it's not special to Taiwan, this particular transformation 
of values. People in Taiwan have, are highly concerned about how others perceive their wealth and beauty, says this writer. Money and beauty define a person's worth in Taiwan, slash Korea, slash United States of America. People are looked down upon and treated poorly if they are not wealthy. This may explain the cause of tremendous insecurity in the psychology of the average Taiwanese to do whatever is needed in order to be wealthy or at least to appear wealthy. How interesting. This is insightful, and I really want to not say, oh, poor Taiwan. I want to say poor living beings. This is not unique to Taiwan, but it's, I think, pointing right to it. She expands it to include China now. Nowadays, both in Taiwan and China, young people are obsessed with following the fashion trend watch, meaning up-to-the-minute changes in fashion, and gossip regarding singers and movie stars, who are often the same people. Most movie stars look for a singing career, and singers become stars. I think more young people aspire to become part of the entertainment business than becoming writers or medical doctors. The example set by entertainers has normalized drug use and prostitution. There, are, there is regular news on famous stars, scandalous lifestyles. Overall, Taiwanese and Chinese societies are very ill. Then she goes on to say that she hopes that the monks and nuns of DRBA will be able to speak Dharma to benefit, to change some, to give an alternative to some of these views. Okay, so how interesting. Here's the Buddha through the Bodhisattva in our, um, in our sutra pointing to us and saying, whoa. Come out of the woods. Don't take that wrong turn at the crossroads. Stay on the big, proper path. Because it's well lit, and you'll get there. You'll arrive where you're going. How come people love the narrow bypath? We do. Good question. So what the writer said about Taiwan probably has more to do with just affluence than it does with nationality. Um, probably the same thing is happening in Vietnam. Probably the same thing is happening in uh, developing economies worldwide. China certainly is a prime example. That as soon as we have the means, we want what we see. I was the first time. I was in Taiwan. I got, I'm sorry, the first time I was in China, I got a sense of this. It was 1989, and we had been invited to take part in the precept transmission at Dragonflower, Dragonflower Monastery in Shanghai. And we checked into the hotel where they put us under close watch, I might add, because we were 
an unknown quantity, American Buddhists. We weren't there to tour, we weren't there to leave money, what were we there to do? You know. So, anyway, there we were, and there was a big TV set, and I wanted to find out what was on Chinese TV. Little did I know that as soon as I hit the button, I was going to be met with Calvin Klein underwear advertisements <laughs> that had been piped in hot from New York, changed into Chinese, and Jeep Cherokee ads. So if you turn the TV on in China, you're supposed to buy a Jeep Cherokee, wear Calvin Klein, and drink Suntory whiskey. Right? And it's like, oh no. What was I thinking? Somehow China was immune to greed and that the poison of Madison Avenue and advertising somehow skipped China? No way. Of course not. So here was the poison of the American way of consumption coming at me from the TV in Shanghai. And don't you know, everybody in Shanghai who now can certainly wants that stuff. I'll take some. That's what you do when you can. So, living beings, we sure do that. The problem with greed, which we read about last week, all living beings grasp without satiation, right? They only seek wealth and profit. That's our first paragraph on top of the page that we read last week. That greed doesn't know enough. It's, it's almost heroic, almost, you'd say, inhuman, sadly, or in living being, non-living being, to say, no, actually, I have enough, plenty, thank you, enough, share it. Somebody else takes some. So many people have nothing, how come the few have way too much? And yet, if you give, try to balance it out, people who didn't have enough, do they at some point say, oh, when I didn't have enough, I learned the value of sufficiency and I'm not greedy. No, greed is built into being a human being. That's what the Buddha is saying. He's not pointing his finger at the haves and the have-nots, and the have-nots are virtuous and the haves are evil. He's saying living beings have this quality in our hearts that is very difficult to subdue Poison. How do you neutralize poison? Sandu, that word is chosen really well. Poison. Poison in our nature will definitely kill us. Probably the saddest, the most dramatic, is um, we talked about it in August when we were back from Oregon. We have this retreat that we go on in Oregon up in the, the woods and we're near Reedsport. If you go up Highway 101, you go through Reedsport, a little tiny town, just one of many up there. And we turn right on the Smith River Valley Road and go in about 13 miles. And you turn the corner and you see a mountain that's been clear-cutted that went undergo clear-cutting. The kind of forestry that it's as if you took a vacuum cleaner to the woods and sucked it all up. 
The only thing that's left are stumps about this big. Nothing green grows there because the timber companies decided this was going to be dead land after they got theirs. And they went in and went... Everything died. It doesn't come back. It, we, we saw this, we've seen it for years now. Same piece. They just little, after five, six years, little bushes of what was once the lungs of the planet. Clear-cutting. It's a practice. And the idea is extract the profits and go. I don't care about anything other than turning that beautiful ancient, wise, healthy, living gift into cash. When I do that, I'm out of here. You go, boy, that's ugly. Boy, that's selfish. Boy, that's evil. If there's anything evil, if you ever see evil, that would be pure the evil of selfishness. I'm going to cut this forest down and go. Anybody else who's here, I don't care. Right? Then you look at a square inch of earth. It can be in your front lawn if you got one. It can be off the pavement. Go find a piece of square, square inch of earth that's alive. Maybe with grass, or it can be weeds, doesn't matter. And stop and look. Get really close. Get right down on it. And look at that living earth. And at first you don't notice. And then you look closer. Then you look closer and you realize, my goodness, there are things wiggling there. Oh my goodness, there are things wiggling there on top of the things that are wiggling. My goodness, under every leaf there are multiple wiggling things. There are, oh my God, the whole thing's alive. You discover you don't see it unless you refocus. But when you refocus your eyes, what you see is big bugs and little bugs and little bugs and little bugs and things that wiggle and things that crawl and things that creep and things that jump, things that fly. It's an entire infinitely vast Millions of living beings on every square inch of ground. No doubt it is the case. I happen to know that because I spent two and a half years with my nose on the ground, moving slowly, and saw all the communities up and down the California coast. And it utterly, totally reoriented my perspective on how important I'm not to the larger scope of things. If I were to die and lay down on the ground tonight, reliably, you could come back in about three weeks and I would have vanished a lot. Much of me would have gone away because I would have integrated with the, I would have moved into the community, into their stomachs, eaten up by all the little buggy crawly things that absolutely inherit the world. 
Humans came late to the party. And we have nearly trashed it. What is it about the greed in humanity that makes us utterly blind to our true place here? I don't know, but I think the Buddha does know. This scolding is right on. Absolutely the case. When humans come, everything else dies. Why? Why do we do that? There's no explanation closer than what the Buddha is giving us. He's saying, you know what? You constantly pursue the three poisons. You swallow it. And in the process, you poison everything else, says the Buddha. Good grief. All kinds of afflictions, such as don't kill me, flare up because of this. Right? And we are now, this is what's so fascinating. We have uh, shifted in a very, 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 very short few years away from even engagement with the reality of nature into a virtual world. Everywhere I go, and I'm going to Europe again in a few months and going to Taiwan again in a few months and going to Singapore again and going to Australia. Everywhere I go, the news is computers have eaten our kids. Or computers have eaten my husband. Or who's left? Computers have eaten my wife. Participation in social networking by women is up 40 to 60%. Dominating. Right? It's built in. It's ready-made for us to network. Okay. What are we doing? We're doing it. We're disappearing into our virtual worlds, preferring them to hanging out on the lawn and watching the birds fly by and the bugs Come through. How funny, huh? Very quickly, we've changed that. If you are not a computer user, congratulations, you're a vanishing breed. <laughs> you're an endangered species. If you don't operate computers, you're, you still have hope of somehow seeing the sunrise and being energized by clean air, right? Clean air? We don't care about clean air. What I want is bandwidth. Dude, give me bandwidth. Clean air? Yeah. Who cares? That's not as important as logging on. So, how funny, right? Humanity is poisoned by greed, anger, and delusion. We're covered by this darkness of stupidity. And the Buddha is saying, yeah, that's the way you are. And if he'd said that, it would be enough. It's a radical diagnosis, prognosis by a skilled existential doctor who's saying, big trouble. That's what you do. And you know what you do? You die all the time. And you kill your world over and over. You do it. And we're in the process. If that was all he said, it would be worthwhile. He doesn't stop there. The Buddha then says, Wodang Ling Pi. 
In my heart, I'm moved, and I want to find a way to do what? Extinguish the fire of affliction, put you in this cool, clear place in nirvana where suffering's over, give you the eye of wisdom that it has no obstacles so that you can see how things really are in their ultimate place and don't have to depend upon anything external to your wisdom, says the Buddha. Very cool. I respond. I like that. Right? The Buddha is not saying, wake up. He's saying, boy, you're really sick. And I'm a doctor and I got the medicine. Here's what I want you to do. Okay. Two more of those paragraphs. We're going to continue on dangerous roads. Into the forest of stupidity like a blind person without a guide, spinning in a wheel pearl of birth and death, etc. Stay tuned next week for the whirlpool of birth and death. <laughs> Notice a drop-off in attendance, right? <laughs> like, no thanks. Tell me more about nirvana. That's what I want. Give me less of that whirlpool of birth and death. Okay, comments, questions? Couldn't help noticing an article that I found just for fun. I think we'll, de- we'll transfer the merit first before I go into this. Okay, let's do that. Dedication of merit, you find it in your sutra text, and it's interactive, it works from your heart, you take part in this, should you choose to do so. Our minds still touch without limit. As you practice transference, you can touch more. It goes further. It's like a muscle that develops if you use it. So let's exercise those transference, dedication muscles in our minds. Start with your parents, family. Hands and hearts can 
Compassionate 